You are listening to Locally Sourced Science. Your connection to the scientific discoveries happening in the Finger Lakes community. I'm Fred Balfour, and you're listening to Locally Sourced Science. In the month of March, a number of U.S. institutions, such as the National Archives and the Library of Congress, recognized the vital role of women in American history. Here at Locally Sourced Science, we recognize the contributions of women scientists to all fields of science. We will be featuring the research of women scientists during all three of our shows this month. Today, you'll hear a feature from Cornell undergraduate Rosemary Gloss. She interviewed Dr. Chelsea Specht, the Barber Clinic professor of, in the School of Integrative Plant Science, where she studies the evolutionary biology of plants. Dr. Specht talks about the value of the many natural history collections at Cornell. After that, you'll hear a profile about the first woman scientist to receive her PhD in botany in the United States. Locally sourced science contributor Janani Harihanan presents a short biography of Indian scientist Dr. Janaki Amal. And later in the show, you'll hear a report on Ithaca College's annual Women in Math Day. Esther Rakuzin covered the February 8th event where female high school students learned about the many reasons why they might want to consider majoring in math in college. But first off, here is Liz Mahood with this week's science news. Hello, locally sourced science listeners. My name is Liz Mahood, and I'm here this week with the science news. Our first story is, well, strictly speaking, out of this world. Mars has received yet another interplanetary device from NASA called InSight with one of the mission leaders being Cornell professor Don Banfield. InSight landed on Mars over a year ago, and Dr. Banfield's lab has been continually collecting data on the surface weather of Mars since then. InSight comes equipped with a thermometer, wind and air pressure sensors, a seismometer, and a magnetometer, which can measure the planet's magnetic forces. Researchers in Dr. Banfield's lab have been taking full advantage of these instruments, and have used them to capture new and mysterious happenings on Mars. Firstly, the team has detected the pressure signature of thousands of dust devils, or small sand tornadoes. However, although other Mars landers have captured images of dust devils, none of InSight's many attempts to image one have been successful. InSight is also the first lander to sense Mars's low rumbling pressure oscillations at around 10 hertz, which is below what the human ear can detect. The researchers have not yet identified the cause of these oscillations. These findings were published in the February 24th edition of the journal Nature Geoscience. Our next story is about a grant awarded to Ithaca College professors to research novel treatments for Parkinson's disease. Four physical therapy professors at Ithaca College have been awarded the Parkinson's Physical Therapy Faculty Award which grants funds to researchers who are improving the quality of life of people with Parkinson's. 
The four Ithaca College professors are Drs. Megan Hotchkiss, Samantha Brown, Sarah Fischel, and Christine McNamara. These professors will use funds to determine if physical therapy activities for Parkinson's patients are more effective in terms of lowering injuries, if done on land or in the water. The study, which is already in effect, had participants with Parkinson's receive physical therapy in either a traditional land-based setting or in a swimming pool. Participants are now being monitored for rates of falls or injuries. Our final news story is about a newly discovered microbial superhero called Barabricholderia madseniana. The bacteria is named after a late Cornell microbiology professor who initially discovered it, Jean Madsen. Dr. Madsen was identifying microbes in soil from Turkey Hill Farm when he initially isolated the bacteria, but passed away before its status as a novel species could be confirmed. The research team of Cornell Crop and Soil Sciences professor Dr. Dan Buckley was the group that confirmed this status, as well as Madseniana's ability to degrade soil contaminants. The research efforts of Dr. Madsen focused on the ability of bacteria to break down and detoxify such hazardous compounds, thus rendering contaminated soils less toxic. In addition to this superpower, Madseniana, along with other soil microbiota, process tons of carbon annually, which could make it a key player in efforts to combat climate change. This research was published in the February 6th edition of the International Journal of Systematic and Evolutionary Microbiology. I'm Liz Mahood, and that was your Science News. And now here is Rosemary Gloss's interview of Dr. Chelsea Specht. And they're like, you know, I used to walk across campus and I was on my phone or I was looking at whatever and I never really looked at the trees. I never looked at the birds. I never realized I was walking on grass, which is a plant and it's a monocot. And, and you realize that they have a natural history blindness. I am Chelsea Specht. I am the Barbara McClintock Professor in Plant Biology here at Cornell University. I'm also the Associate Dean for Diversity and Inclusion for the College of Agriculture and Life Sciences. Hello, and welcome to The Loop, a podcast about biological collections and how we use them. I'm Rosemary Gloss. This episode is dedicated to Dr. Vicki Funk, a pioneering botanist, curator, and plant systematist who passed away on October 22nd of this year. Vicki combined field botany and 21st century systematics with grit, passion, and humor. She authored over 280 botanical papers, including many on the importance of natural history collections. She leaves an enduring legacy as a collaborator, mentor, and friend. When I first came to Cornell as a student, I worked in a place that few students have heard of, and even fewer have visited, the herbarium. The herbarium is a collection of preserved plant specimens used for scientific study, kind of like a big plant library. And boy, is it big. Here at Cornell, we have an herbarium that contains over 860,000 specimens from all over the world. As a first-year student, I spent many hours on the fourth floor of Mann Library imaging herbarium specimens for digitization, decoding the flowery script on old labels, and carefully filing sheets of pressed plants into huge rolling cabinets. Botanists would come and go, many of them specialists in specific plant groups who came from other institutions to take advantage of Cornell's diverse collections. 
As the months passed, I realized that what some people might misunderstand as just a bunch of old dead stuff is actually a highly dynamic and growing scientific resource. The herbarium is not alone at Cornell. It belongs to a cohort of internationally recognized natural history collections that serve as critical resources and repositories for biodiversity research. To learn more about the value, scope, and impact of natural history collections at Cornell, I sat down with Dr. Chelsea Specht, a scientist who has interacted with them for her entire career. Chelsea's journey into the world of natural history collections started when she was a graduate student at the New York Botanical Garden. There, she worked with one of the largest herbaria in the country and one of the world's most well-known research collections. She has also held positions at the Smithsonian Institution and the University of California, Berkeley, where she served as an assistant professor and curator in the University and Jepson Herbaria. In 2017, Chelsea moved from UC Berkeley to Cornell. Here, she is part of the Liberty Hyde Bailey Hortorium, which includes not just the herbarium, but also the plant anatomy collection, a horticultural catalog collection, a botanical library, a paleobotany collection, and the Liberty Hyde Bailey Conservatory, a living collection of plants for teaching and research. She and her students, myself included, regularly use and contribute to Cornell's natural history collections. It was a pleasure to sit down with Chelsea and discuss the state of natural history collections in the 21st century. We started by talking about some of the challenges that they face. The challenges are kind of the challenges that have been with collections since probably the beginning of time in that they take space, they're dead, and people think, well, why do we need to fill up space with dead things? When you're thinking about buildings and infrastructure and classroom space versus laboratory space versus storage space, we really run into a lot of the same problems that libraries run into, where you're like, well, do we need to have all of these stacks of books when, in fact, we could just put it into a computer? There's still so many reasons why we need to physically interrogate specimens on a regular basis. There's also the challenges of maintaining them close to students, so students have access. You can't just put collections in a warehouse in some place that's maybe cheaper to have that type of storage space because then your students lose the ability to interact with them and then you lose the ability as a professor to engage students with collections, which is really how you infect them with the passion for working with them. <laughs> I'm definitely infected. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you're one of our infectees, so it's, it's great. And, and I think understanding that you need to be in those collections and smelling them and touching them and interacting with them is really, really important. And to the same sense, we can't just put them all at the New York Botanical Garden or at the Missouri Botanical Garden because while they do have some student access, it doesn't have the breadth of reaching students that a university setting has. There there is a great movement to digitize herbaria and other natural history collections, and it is a great movement mm-hmm. uh, in part because we get to see so much of this data online and it's more accessible across the world. But at the same time, I like that you're mentioning how important it is to still be able to touch an actual specimen. So we need both. Yeah, uh, definitely. And having accessibility to these specimens across the world is really important, especially as many of them have been collected in countries and then brought back to the U.S. or to Europe. And in order to make them accessible back to those students and and faculty working in those countries, it's really, and and NGOs, it's really important that we do digitize and have accessibility of these collections. However, uh, there's still, even with a really great image, you can go in, you can make particular measurements, but you can't take DNA (laughs) out of an image. And so having that actual preserved specimen is still very important. I guess that's an example of how 
collections are being used in ways that the original people who collected those specimens may never have imagined. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. I mean, so you go out, you collect a plant, you bring it back to the herbarium, and now we're finding all sorts of new ways that we can query those herbarium sheets and develop new tools and new assays to look at a more comprehensive biodiversity. So you're talking a bit there about just how important the collections here at Cornell are. Uh, we have the herbarium, we have the conservatory, and then we have a whole host of other biological collections in multiple disciplines under many different departments and university institutions. Can you talk a little bit about how we can view the collections here at Cornell with a more united front, given that they're under so many different umbrellas? Yeah, that's a great question, Rosie, and I appreciate you asking that. Since I've come here a couple of years ago, we've added new faculty working on the collections. And so there's myself in the Hortorium. We've got uh, Patrick O'Grady, who is in charge of the Drosophila Species Stock Center, and then Corey Moreau, who's come in as the curator for the insect collection. And uh, Patrick is also part of that insect collection group. And so we're kind of building a front to see what we can do to bring some of these collections together. As scientists, we talk, we interact, we think about the ways that our collections uh, feed on one another, both for teaching and research purposes, for outreach purposes. And there had been a movement in the past to actually have a building that would serve as a natural history museum where all the natural history collections could be, as well as classroom space and exhibit space. And it would be fantastic to bring that natural history museum kind of environment to our undergraduate population for the research, but also for the museum studies kind of environment where they could be, as you are, doing communications projects that are linked with a natural history museum. Mm -hmm. An exhibit space and our students doing art could contribute as well. So it still is sort of a dream to bring it into a museum, but there are some barriers in place just because of the the environment that we're in. If we could have the dream, if we could have the Johnson Museum of Art, and then whoever wants to put their name on it, Museum of Natural History, you know, there's definitely a bunch of faculty, uh, staff, and students on campus that, that I think would get behind that. That would be beautiful. Yeah, for sure. So you are the CALS Dean of Diversity and Inclusion, and I want to make sure we bring that conversation in here because we're talking all about the importance of biodiversity and biodiversity and collections and here at Cornell. And I'm just wondering if you think there's a link between the importance of biodiversity research and also the urgent need to increase human diversity in the sciences. That's a really fantastic question. I think one that doesn't get asked often enough. I feel like I'm in an interesting position in that I have the, the passion and the knowledge for bringing biodiversity to the front and then also thinking about human diversity and how we want to have a more inclusive science in general. Of course, with my passion being biodiversity science, I think about it in that light as well. And when you think about sustainability, you can't think about sustainability of our planet, of our natural resources, without thinking about biodiversity. We can focus on ag, but really when we're thinking about where all of the diversity of our agricultural products come from, they come from biological diversity. They are cultivated, they are domesticated, and they are products of the genetic diversity that we have in our natural environments. And the more we can get different cultures, people from different backgrounds, people with different stories, to become part of the movement and to be thinking about solutions about, about natural history, natural diversity, biological diversity, that increases the ability to have broad, inclusive, and more engaging dialogues about how biodiversity can contribute to global sustainability. 
And it, the, the minute we exclude particular people from that, we exclude potential solutions. So yeah, we want to get everybody into the herbarium. <laughs> mm-hmm. it, it feels particularly pertinent because we value our natural history collections most when they contain specimens from all over the world. And Absolutely. so if we have this incredibly diverse collection, and then the only people studying it are not people with backgrounds in all those different parts of the world, too. Right. It just seems disingenuous. That's absolutely true. And I think it's, it, you know, you have somebody with even a very local perspective walk into a collection and they start seeing the diversity of, of collections from around the world. And you can see their minds start to appreciate that global diversity. And so now if you can incorporate people from that global perspective into those environments, it just makes everything more rich. Well, thank you very much, Chelsea. Before we sign off, is there anything else you'd like to add about the role of natural history collections here at Cornell and anything you want people to know about Cornell's collections? Well, hopefully we'll be developing a course in collections that will span across the various collections so that students will have a capacity to learn how to collect and prepare birds, herps, plants, and become very well-trained as museum scientists. We've got the faculty community in place, and we're really hoping to expand this to the Ithaca community more broadly and even beyond that to the New York State community, and of course, always with the focus of ensuring that our students are getting the best education. Want to learn more about how you can support collections-based science at Cornell? Chelsea would love to hear from you. Contact her at cdspect at cornell.edu. Many of the natural history collections at Cornell, including the Liberty Hyde Bailey Conservatory, Cornell Botanic Gardens, and the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, are open to the public. Others are happy to receive visitors by appointment. Go visit. You might be surprised by what you can find. Today's episode was produced by me, Rosemary Gloss, with thanks to Kitty Gifford, Mark Sarvery, and Jasmine Mack. Music was by Obsibilo and Montplaisir. Eager for more stories about biological collections and how we use them? Stay tuned for the next episode of The Loop. You are listening to Locally Sourced Science. Do you have an upcoming science event or news piece that you would like to tell us about? Tweet us at FLX Science Radio or send us an email at locally sourced science at gmail.com. Also, check out our podcast at locally At that site, you can subscribe to new episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and other podcast apps. Now, here's a brief profile about pioneering female botanist Dr. Janaki Amal. March is Women's History Month in the United States, and here at Locally Sourced Science, we want to take this opportunity to highlight some of our favorite women scientists. Today, I'm going to talk about an Indian women scientist, Dr. Janaki Amal, who is thought to be the first woman in the U.S. to earn a Ph.D. in botany. This is a remarkable achievement in and of itself, but especially because most women in India lacked access to secondary education in her time. Janaki was born in Telicheri in British India in 1897. While she was teaching at the Women's Christian College in former Madras, 
she received the Barber Scholarship from the University of Michigan to pursue a master's degree, which she accepted after turning down a marriage proposal. This eventually led to her returning to Michigan to conduct her doctoral research in botany. Janaki was one of a handful of Indian women in pre-independence India to have a distinguished academic career despite facing significant gender and caste-based barriers. She was involved with research at multiple international institutions such as the John and Center in the UK, the Maharaja's College of Science, Trivandrum, India, the Sugarcane Breeding Institute, the Royal Horticultural Society, Wesley, and various government research facilities in India. The choice of plants she worked on was equally diverse and fascinating. South Asian elephant grass, the saccharum genus that includes sugarcane, magnolia shrubs, a variety of garden and medicinal plants. Her scientific expertise was very interdisciplinary as well, as evidenced by multiple works published in the areas of cytogenetics, plant biogeography, ecology, and taxonomy. Today, there are two major awards in her name. The first is the Janagi Amal National Award for Taxonomy bestowed by the Government of India, and the second is the Janaki Amal Scholarship awarded to students wishing to pursue postgraduate studies at the Janin Center. She also has the distinction of having two species of flowers named after her, the Magnolia cobus Janaki Amal and a new rose species named E.K. Janaki Amal. It is evident from these various honors that Janaki Amal has left her mark on the fields of botany and taxonomy, but also on the minds of many South Asian women who have shared her love of science. I am Janani Hariharan for Locally Sourced Science. I'm Esther Rakusin for Locally Sourced Science. On February 8th, Ithaca College hosted the 2020 Women in Math Day. Female high school students from the region were invited to attend and learn more about what it is like to be a math major in college and to learn about math careers. During the event, high school students had the opportunity to meet Ithaca College female math majors and faculty members and professionals who use math in their career fields. Ithaca College Assistant Professor Megan Martinez is one of the faculty members who planned Women in Math Day. I asked her how this event came about and why she thinks it is an important event. Yeah, so this is an event that started, this is our third year of running it, and it started as um, funded by the Mathematical Association of America. We got a tensor grant from them to basically uh, encourage women in mathematics, because traditionally in the United States, um, women in mathematics are, are underrepresented. And so having an opportunity to reach out to um, girls who are potentially interested in math, think it's kind of cool, but don't know it's something you can do, this event is an opportunity to bring everyone together and say, look, there are other women who do mathematics. There are careers that use mathematics, and this is just a low-key chance for you to see what that's all about. One of the features of today's event was a keynote presentation by Dr. Sarah Moira Shields, Associate Director for the NASA New York Space Consortium. She spoke to the high school students about how she uses math in her work. Here she talks about her job. Uh, so I work for Cornell um, as the Associate Director of the NASA New York Space Grant Consortium which is a state program that is funded by NASA to encourage education um, and research initiatives in fields uh, relevant to NASA, which is pretty much all science. <laughs> During her address, Sarah Moira Shields taught the students how to create an origami shape. 
Here, she explains why she decided to do this. I, I talked a little bit about um, how origami is used in um, NASA applications in spacecraft design and uh, satellite design. And then uh, we walked through creating something called a trihexaflexagon, um, which is a neat little model that um, can sort of turn itself inside out continually. Um, and it has three sides, which is a little unusual. Um, and uh, it's, it's something that uh, I've been playing with a little bit and some other researchers at Cornell have been playing with a little bit for modeling things like uh, robotic motion and um, some other you know, satellite ideas. Um, but it's a fairly simple model to make, and it, it kind of breaks your brain a little bit, so it's kind of interesting to play with. Another feature of today's event was a career panel where a number of different female professionals talked about how they use math in their jobs. Liana Nice is the Associate Director of Breeding Sciences at Nature Source Improved Plants. Here she talks about her work. So I'm a woman in a field that is very um, related to math, but I'm not a mathematician per se. Um, so I work at a company called Nature Source Improved Plants, which is here in Ithaca. And the company was founded to basically um, bring mathematical and engineering fields together, people from those backgrounds to solve biological problems. We have a lot of data that we have to deal with, and there has to be a way of, of getting all that data into a framework that someone like me with a biological biology background can um, actually make decisions. And so um, underlying all of those decisions that we make are computational mathematical algorithms that process all the data and get it into a format that I can understand and I can um, use to make a biological decision. During the panel presentation, the high school students also had a chance to hear from an Ithaca College math major. Here, senior Molly Knoll describes how she decided to major in math and what her future plans are. I'm a math major. I have economics and computer science minors. And uh, when I started at Ithaca College, I came in as a math major. I always knew that I liked math, and that's what I wanted to study in college. But I had no idea what I wanted to do with it in the future. I thought, like, maybe teaching. wasn't really sure. So I kind of just tried to take as many math classes in different areas as possible and find what I was interested in. And um, the last two summers, I done a research experience for undergraduate or RU programs, one at Hobart and William Smith College, and one at Kent State University. I had to experience kind of like what the math research process is like. And doing that through my coursework here, I found that I really enjoyed doing math research and I wanted to go to grad school for math. So I have all my applications in for those last semester, so I'm waiting to hear back to start an applied math PhD program in the fall. After the panel presentation, I had a chance to speak with another math major, Joan Metal, who spoke with some of the high school students who attended the event. First off, Joan talked about why she decided to major in math and what it was like to speak with the high school students. Um, well, I came in undecided, but I always liked math in high school, and I took Calc 2 when I got here, and I uh, actually had Megan as a professor. I really liked her as a professor. I liked the program, um, and I was kind of encouraged to do it and all the different things you could do with it, so I declared it as my major. Um, I liked talking to them a lot. It was interesting to see like who was interested in what, and depending on like the years, whether they're looking at going to school, and uh, it was just different to see. I had no idea what I wanted to do in high school, so these kids, like someone in like, eighth grade, already know exactly what they want to be, and I think that's great. They have goals and everything. 
I also had the opportunity to talk with Elena Rodriguez, a high school student from Watkins Glen. Here was her viewpoint on today's event. And what brought you to today's event? Um, my mom told me about it, and, well, I've kind of always been interested in math, and I'm really good at it, so my mom suggested it, and I was like, okay, sure, we can go. Yeah. What was one of your favorite things about today? Uh, the origami part, because, like, I've, I know how to do some origami, and it's really cool to me because it's, like, art, and I can see it, and it's really fun, so, yeah. Finally... I spoke with Ithaca College Math Department Professor Ted Galanthe. He expressed why he thinks that Women in Math Day is so important. Programs like this that expose students to what's possible, encourage them to continue doing what they like to do, um, is so important in forming uh, teenagers to become whoever they choose to be as they grow up. For Locally Sourced Science, I'm Esther Rakusin. I'm Fred Balfour, and you've been listening to Locally Sourced Science. Esther Rakuzin produced today's show and the feature about Ithaca College's Women's in Math Day. Rosemary Gloss produced the interview of Dr. Chelsea Sprecht. Johnani Harihanan wrote the Women Scientists in History profile, and Liz Mahood produced the Science News. Our theme music is from Joe Lewis, and other music is by Blue Dot Sessions and Ben Jordan. You can find all of our archive shows and subscribe to our podcast at locallysourcedscience.org. And don't forget to tweet us at at sign FLX Science Radio. Again, we will be featuring the research of women scientists during our next two shows this month. So tune in again on March 17th and March 31st. Science out! Science out!